We are bringing together imperfect people in pursuit of a whole life. Welcome to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. This week, Pastor Dion shares his message from Identity, Inc. Hard Reset. Well, hello again. My name is Dion, and I'm so glad you're here with us for this series, Identity, Inc. It's important stuff. Um, I give myself, I don't know about you and your practices, I, I give myself a limit each day. I give myself only 15 minutes on social media a day. That's my limit, thanks to my phone, uh, who reminds me. Um, because I realize that, and I'm primarily on Instagram, but I realize any more than 15 minutes and I get irritable. Anybody else? Yeah, I get irritable. And the truth is, I don't need any help with that generally. Like, irritable is in my nature, so I, I don't need any catalyst to help me be irritable. Uh, but the other day I was scrolling through Instagram and I, uh, I saw an ad and it was, it was kind of interesting. It said, childhood trauma test, what image do you see first? And then there were these four images, um, these images that kind of have um, uh, these different uh, things. Um, and, and so I thought, you know, what a great way to start off a message, especially on school worship weekend where we got our school uh, kids leading us. What a great way to start this. Like, can you think of a better way than to talk about childhood trauma? Like, let's really assess, like, what we're doing here. Um, so, uh, so I want you to look at these pictures, and, and in each of these, you might see a couple images. What do you see first? That's the question. What do you see first? Just kind of take that in for a second. Go ahead and look at all four. There's more than one thing in each one of these pictures, so I just want you to notice what is it that you see first. Maybe you see both. Maybe you don't. Okay, now, now I want to do a quick poll. So uh, how many of you saw, I think we have the, the next one, Chris. Uh, how many of you saw an elephant first? I was afraid of that. Um, anyone, anyone see a night forest first? See the night sky? No one? Okay, 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 a couple of you. Uh, how many saw um, the guitar first here? How many of you saw the ghoulish hands? Not good. Okay. Um, how many of you saw the butterfly here first? Okay, lots of butterflies. The apple? All right, interesting. That was more, a little more split. Uh, this one actually took me a little while to see. How many of you see first a young woman? This is her nose. This is her mouth looking down this way, kind of looking into the negative space. How many of you saw the young woman? Uh, how many of you saw the old woman kind of looking up that way? Wow. Okay. If you saw the elephant, you saw the ghoulish hands, you saw the butterfly, and if you saw the old woman, do you know what that means? I actually have no idea because I didn't click the button to buy the app to find out what this means. I, I didn't fall for it. I, I do love these kinds of pictures, though. Ever since I was a kid, I loved these images where you could see more than one thing. And to let, you know, and it's the, like the dress thing is the dress, you know, the dress thing. Is it blue or gold or whatever the dress? Like, we see things differently. And I love these pictures because they kind of play with your head and they play with perspective. And they remind you that we all don't see the world in the same way. And, and I want, just want you to keep this in mind as we look at today's scripture in a moment from Romans chapter 8. Um, it's, a, it's a scripture that may be well-known, but I think the perspective that we have as we look at that scripture is often very, very different. Um, so before we dive into Romans 8, um, one of the things I, I just want you to notice or to point out to you is that we've actually spent a lot of time in the book of Romans throughout this series. And it's for good reason, because the church in Rome was a church that had a lot of identity conflict. Uh, it's Rome, so it's the capital of the Roman Empire, but there were a lot of faithful Jewish people who lived there. There were also a lot of Greek people who lived there, so there was this ethnic 
clash. Not only that, there was a cultural clash. And then, of course, if you're in Rome, you have a bunch of people who are Roman citizens, and then you have a bunch of people who are not Roman citizens. And so you had this class clash over citizenship. And so within the church, you had all these different people with these different identity markers or values. And there, were the, there's this, there was this conflict within the church. And what Paul does through Romans is he tries to help them understand like, hey, hey, this is who you really are. And this is who you aren't. Here's the stuff that matters. Here's the stuff that doesn't matter near as much as you think. And that's why we've been looking at Romans so much, uh, not exclusively, but so much during um, this series. So we're going to look today at Romans 8, uh, starting at verse 28. Paul says, And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Now, as you hear just those two verses, there are probably all kinds of things that come up for you that you would love to talk about. Like God works good for the good of all who love him. Uh, God works all things for good uh, for those who love him. So what does that mean when things aren't going well in life? What does it mean when things are going bad? Some of us may wonder about that. Or uh, this word predestined, that's a big controversial topic amongst Christians, predestination. Some of you want to talk about that. We're not going to talk about any of that today. Not today, not today. Instead, um, the words that are in highlight, I, I just want you to hear these words again and notice how they land for you. Uh, for those that God foreknew, he also set their destiny in advance and the destiny is to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus, that Jesus might be the firstborn among many identical twins. In other words, that Jesus might not be the only one who looks and acts the way he does, but there might be a whole bunch more people who look just like Jesus. How do those words hit you? I think for some of us, these are really hopeful words. And for some of us, these words might actually feel threatening. And so as you sit here today, um, which is true for you? Just be honest with yourself. Do these words feel hopeful or do they feel threatening? Hopeful or threatening? How do they land for you? I want to start talking about threatening um, because I I think for starters, some of the reason these words might feel threatening is because of that word conform or conformity. Um, a lot of us don't really like conformity. A lot of us hate conformity. Actually, scratch that. Um, a lot of us hate conformity in certain circumstances. We actually, as humans, love conformity. Have you noticed this? If not, how do you explain this? The Stan- you know, the Stanley Cup craze. Now, for those of you who are unaware, this is the newest trend in drinkware. Uh, for, uh, for, for our population, it used to be Yetis or Hydroflasks, but especially in schools, uh, you see lots of young women with their, with their Stanleys. Anyone bring their Stanley with me here today? Yeah, you got one? That's right, the Stanley. I mean, now, now here's what's interesting. Does anybody remember when Stanley used to be the brand of thermos that your working class dad or grandpa took with him to the job site every day with, you know, like a pot full of coffee in that thing. Yeah, yeah. Now, now Stanley's taking on a whole different thing and everybody's got to have a Stanley. I know in my house there are a few Stanleys floating around. Conformity, it's, it's interesting how we respond to conformity or what we think about it. 
Um, I also think about um, my family's time here at St. John's School. All of my kids are uh, now moved through St. John's School, but they all attended St. John's School. Uh, and it was a great school for them, for, for our family. Um, they all went on to public high school and St. John's School served them so, so well. It really did. Um, they got to high school and they knew how to write better than most of their peers. They could stand up and do presentations so much more easily than their peers, in part because they got opportunities to do things like we see this weekend. Um, I think most of all, my kids got to high school and they, they knew who they were and they felt okay with who they were. And so they didn't feel all the pressure to try to be uh, something that they weren't. Um, and so we, we had great experiences here. Um, but one of the things that my kids did not like about their time at St. John's School was the uniforms. I mean, they're cute uniforms. They're, they're wearing uniforms here today, um, but they hated the uniforms. They could not stand their uniforms. Now, Jocelyn and I, we loved uniforms because it made it really, really easy. Um, it was cheap. Like a lot of families just handed uniforms down and, and the stuff that our older daughter could wore first and then our younger daughter could wear. And, and uh, it just made the mornings easy. Like there was no big fight about, I don't like my outfit. You just like knew what you were going to wear every morning. Uh, the financial pressure of trying to buy all the latest trends, that was lessened because y'all, y'all wear the same thing. And so we, we loved uniforms. In fact, every week during spirit week where the kids get to dress up in different um, costumes or different dress, you know, you know what I'm talking about, like you dress like a twin day, crazy hair, you know, those things. Um, we used to call that here in my era. I don't know if they still do. We used to call it uniform appreciation week. Cause it was such a pain to help your kid figure out what they were going to wear for, you know, dress like the eighties day. And we're like, gosh, aren't you glad you have uniforms? But my kids, they did not feel the same about the uniforms. They hated that they had to dress and look like everyone else, so much so that my oldest started a trend that on the night of graduation, after graduation was over from eighth grade, uh, we would go to our house, we'd build a bonfire, and they would take a uniform and ceremonially burn it as a sign of them being free from the bondage of uniforms. Sometimes they'd have friends come over and do it with them. Black smoke for miles, by the way, because there's a lot of polyester in those, uh, in those uniform skirts. And, um, and and so then they go on to high school. They go on to public high school. And, and here's what I discovered at uh, public high school, just Marquette High School right here in Chesterfield. Um, I, I volunteer there once a month in the school store. And so I see hundreds of kids every time that I'm there. And after my first couple of shifts there, I realized that Marquette High School, unbeknownst to me, also has a uniform. It's like wild. 2,400 kids all dressed the same. The boys, it's Nike sweatpants. For the girls, it's Lululemon leggings or some other kind of leggings, all wearing baggy crew neck sweatshirts, and the girls toting around their Stanleys. Like, it's, it's without, they all look the same. It's weird, isn't it? Now, uh, parents, I just want you to know that these are the hidden costs of public education that when you're in private school, you don't have to deal with. Yes, you pay tuition, but that uniform, the Nike, the Lulu, the, that's an expensive uniform. Um, so just... You know, when you do the accounting, just think about that at the open house later today. Conformity is interesting because we willingly conform to things that we find attractive. Someone's driving a new Jeep Grand Wagoneer. We're like, that's a nice car. I'd like to drive. We don't care how many friends have that car. We, we feel good about having that if it's something that feels attractive to us. But when it's involuntary conformity, that becomes threatening. And so, and so as you hear those words from Paul, that 
that our destiny is to be conformed to the image or the likeness of Jesus, I guess some of that depends whether it feels hopeful or threatening for you on whether or not you see this as a voluntary thing. Is this something that you want? Is this something that's attractive in your life? Or is this something that you feel coerced into doing? Uh, The other thing that I think makes this so threatening for us is this idea that that we're going to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. It doesn't always sit well with us because we all have a deep-seated fear of losing ourselves. Right? There may be things in your life right now that you don't like. There may be things about you that you, you wish could be different. But at the same time, there's, there's a line, isn't there? Where maybe you wish you could be different, but you don't want to be so different that you're no longer you. And so a lot of us, we really, really wish that things in our lives could change, that circumstances could change. But we don't want to change that much especially if it might mean that we somehow become less of us. This is why in in the medical community, we don't do frontal lobotomies anymore. That operation where they basically remove part of your prefrontal cortex, because although it worked to rid people of of really torturous um, mental health conditions, the result was people were no longer themselves. And and we decided, hey, it's not worth it to have peace and to not have all the effects of, of mental torture if you're no longer you. I mean, this is the plot of lots of movies. Would you rather live in a simulation where you're happy, but it's not really you? Or or would you rather live in warfare against the enemies who are trying to hold you in subjugation if you can be truly you? And, And we pick every time the misery if we can authentically be ourselves over the bliss of not being us. I remember a few years ago when, um, when I was just really digging into some, some healing that I needed to do in my life, there was, there was just some stuff in my life that uh, was, was making me miserable, and, and I was trying to lean into, like, how, how do I heal? How do I grow through this? And so one of the things that I tried, I, I went on a 10-day silent retreat, and people had talked about how the silent retreat had been just a breakthrough for them. It brought a lot of peace of mind. It helped them get through some things. And, and I thought, you know what? I'm going to do that. I, I would love to to have a breakthrough and to experience greater healing. But as I was preparing to go on the silent retreat, I started feeling anxious and every member of my family was feeling anxious. And and the anxiety was, what if this actually works? Like, what what if I find greater peace? What if I come back a different person? Which in some ways would be great, but what if I come back too different of a person? And I remember Jocelyn and the kids all looking at me being like, Dad, what if you come back and you're weird? Like, you're happy, but you're weird. Like, in other words, we wouldn't know what to do with you, Dad, if you were actually a happy person. Like, we wouldn't know what that would be. Right, for some of us, this this promise, it's a promise, but it feels threatening that we are destinies to be conformed to the image or the likeness of Jesus, that we will look like Jesus, that we will be identical twins of Jesus. That feels threatening if we think that means that we're going to lose too much of ourselves. And here's what's interesting. These words from Paul in Romans 8, which are really intended to be hopeful words, I think for a lot of us, they land as threatening, but they don't have to. Uh, You see, there was a time in my life where where I I think I did feel threatened by these words. I just thought it was the right thing to do as a Christian to want this, but I didn't want it. I didn't want to look more like Jesus. But but now something has happened in my life where I do. And I think some of what's happened is, is I'm a little older. Maybe I'm a little more weary with trying to live life only as myself the way I am, but I think I also understand better what Paul meant, and and I hope I can pass this along 
to you. Why becoming more like Jesus is actually a really hopeful thing. And the first reason is, is because becoming more like Jesus is about his internal characteristics, not his external circumstances. When you, when you think about Jesus, and let's just be honest, think about the person of Jesus for a minute and think about his external like biography, his timeline. It's nothing that most of us would want. Who would want to be a nomadic street preacher who has no home, owns nothing, doesn't own a car, doesn't own a donkey, goes around teaching people, doesn't have a place to live, doesn't have any family, crashes on friends' couches essentially until his 30s where he's executed for treason. Right? We'd look, we'd look at that biography and we'd say, oh, that's what my life gets to be? No, thank you. I'd rather keep my family, keep my house, keep my job, keep my prospects for the future. And the good news is when, when we talk about becoming more like Jesus, we're not talking about these external things. And yet so many of us think that if we become like Jesus, we're going to become like one of these people, right? Ned Flanders, or, or we got to go find a, a mountain somewhere in Tibet to meditate on for the rest of our lives and reject everything about our present lives, or, or we've got to go and be a zealot and yell at people and tell them they're going to hell or something. What Paul is saying when he tells us that our destiny, if, if we are in Christ, our destiny is that we would inevitably start to look more and more like Jesus. He's not talking about the external circumstances. He's talking about the internal characteristics. He's saying that we will be styled after Jesus on the inside. Well, what does that mean? Actually, Paul talks about this earlier in Romans 8. Uh, just in that same chapter we were in before, um, earlier on, he says this, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. Now, now just to be clear on this, this, uh, these, this dichotomy here, uh, when Paul says flesh, he's not talking about like the body necessarily, but he's saying worldliness. Those who have, uh, live according to kind of worldly, non-God-informed ways that's kind of where their mind is. But those who have their mind set on godly things are open to, to God's teaching. Their mind is set on different things. So there's this dichotomy. You can be someone who's worldly. You can be someone who's godly. You can be led by, by dark desires. You can be led by the, by the spirit of God. And then he says this, that the mind governed by the flesh, those worldly ways, is death. But the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. However the rest of this lands for you, I mean, just listen to this. The mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. Who doesn't want more life and peace? Uh, in another place, Galatians, Paul talks a little bit more about life in the Spirit, what it is to be in Christ. He says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, no one can have an argument. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And, and before this, he actually talks about all those passions and desires that we have, the things actually that make us miserable, he says. When we come into a relationship with Jesus, those things start to die and we come alive to things like love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, who doesn't want more of those things? See, Paul's promise that says that if we remain in a relationship with God, 
that over time our destiny is to look more like Jesus. He's talking about these kinds of things that, that if, if you just remain in Jesus, and Jesus himself says this, remain in me and I remain in you, then you're gonna bear fruit. What he's saying is if, if you just abide with me, if you just connect with me, like I will take care of your destiny. I will, I will transform you day by day internally into a person who has greater life and peace, who evidences a greater measure of the fruit of the spirit. When Paul says we will be conformed to the image of Jesus, he's not talking about the external stuff necessarily that makes us crazy, unless, unless your job or something is really immoral or, or you love money too much. Maybe you got to make some changes there. But you, you can keep your family, you can keep your job. In fact, we'll talk about that next week, how our jobs are an important part of our identity but what he's really talking about is this stuff that's going to happen on the inside. It's a reason that we can feel hopeful about this promise of becoming more like Jesus. And here's the other thing that you need to know, which, which I hope will make this hopeful for you, not threatening, that becoming more like Jesus, it doesn't mean becoming less of our true selves. Um, if you believe in orthodox Christian theology, theology then one of the things that you believe is that Jesus is fully God and fully human, all in one being. That he's true God, he's true man, that he's divinity and humanity combined. That's orthodox theology. But I think most of us tend to think of Jesus when we just think of him as primarily divine, primarily God, who's just kind of possessing a human body for a little while. We think of him as way more divine than human. But, but there is actually a theological argument that what made Jesus special was not just that he was divine. Yes, that certainly made him special. But, but both parts of Jesus' nature make him special, that he's divine and human. And in fact, there's this argument to be made that, that one of the things that made Jesus so special in the way that he lived, uh, so, so admirable, so lovable. I mean, everybody today still uh, loves the person of Jesus. There's an argument that says that what made Jesus so special is that he was not just divine, but he was the most fully human person who had ever walked the planet and who has ever walked the planet since. The most fully human. That Jesus came, and part of what makes Jesus so special is that he came to show us what's possible for humanity when we live in relationship with God rather than living at war with God, right? That, that, that if we all could just sink into a relationship with our Father in heaven the same way that Jesus did, that our humanity, our, our world would be forever changed. And, and I just want you to know today, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you believe, if you're just exploring this thing, if, if you've been at this for a long time, I just want to remind you that whoever you are, you are someone that God wants to be in relationship with. It's not just that the father loved Jesus because he was special. God, the father loves you just as much and, and he's inviting you into a relationship with himself. And, and here's the other thing, that life will never be right. It'll never be whole. It'll never, it'll never have life and peace until you acknowledge and receive that relationship. You'll go along for the rest of your life trying to make a great life for yourself, but until you stop being at war with God and recognize that Jesus came to end the war, to be your peace, to invite you into a relationship with your father, until you, until you receive that, it doesn't matter what you achieve. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter who your friends are. It doesn't matter 
you'll, you'll never be whole. You'll never be right inside. And, and the good news is that every person hearing my voice right now, your father in heaven, he, he deeply desires to be in a relationship with you. And if you accept that relationship, and accepting that relationship just means saying, okay, I'm going to stop fighting. I'm open. If you accept that relationship, God day by day will begin to work in you. He'll begin to do new work in you. And that relationship will begin to transform your humanity. See, see the good news of, of Jesus being this more fully human person than anyone who has ever lived before is that then becoming more like Jesus means we become more fully human in all the best senses, not less human. That means we become more fully us, not less of us. But the problem is, the problem is the reason this feels threatening is because we have these ideas of, if you remember this from a couple of weeks ago, we have these ideas of who we are and so much of who we think we are are things that actually are not us. So you are not what you do or what you have or what people say about you. And yet this is the stuff we think defines us. And I need you to understand this, get this, that the big problem in your life, the big problem with you, that the source of your discontentment and your frustration and the pain you experience and the pain that you inflict on other people is that you have allowed all kinds of other things that are not you to cloud and confuse you about who you really are. But when you come into a relationship with God, what begins to happen is God begins to put to death all the things that are not you so that not, not so that you can become someone that's not you, so that you can become more fully who you really are, who you were always meant to be. Uh, maybe think about it this way. Um, I, I don't know if you... Uh, I don't know if you have a smartphone. I mean, I think everybody does, right? Um, I remember the first time I had an iPhone. I, I, some friends way back when I was in Michigan, 15, 16 years ago, they bought me my first iPhone. And then I remember the day where all of a sudden it was just like a white screen and nothing was working. And, and I was like, oh no, I have to get a brand new phone. I had never seen this before. Um, but what the phone needed at the time was, was uh, just to push a couple of buttons. And this is still true of your phone, like when it's lagging, when it's slow, when it's freezing up or it's glitchy. And you're thinking, oh, I got to drop $1,000 on a new phone. I, I think you all know this. The reality is that you might just have to push a few buttons or hold a few buttons down to do what's called a hard reset, right? And a hard reset is different than a factory reset. If you go through your phone and you do a factory reset, that basically means you're wiping everything off your phone. Your, your camera roll's gone. Your contacts are gone. All of your apps are gone. It's like a brand new phone out of the box. But a hard reset's different. A hard reset just what it does is, is it takes all that fragmented, fragmented bits of code that kind of get, you know, gunk up your phone over time or those tracking cookies that all those nefarious websites and apps put on your phone. And a hard reset just kind of wipes all that stuff out, all the junk out, but you still have your apps and your camera roll and all the things, right? It's still your phone. Just got rid of all the stuff that was slowing your phone down. You see, this, this, is a picture of what it means to become more and more like Jesus. It's not the factory reset. It's not wiping you and your slate clean so that you're some kind of brainwashed clone. Instead, what Paul's describing is, is, is this process where 
God begins to take away all of the things that are not actually us, the things that are slowing us down, causing us pain. And he brings us back to the core of who we really are. So, so how do you do a hard reset in your life? Well, Paul talks about it also in the book of Galatians. He says, uh, so simply, he says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, again, depending on how you hear these words, this may sound really threatening. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. If you think about this through the factory reset thing, what Paul is saying is Jesus came into my life and I'm no longer me anymore. And I really don't know if there's a person in this room who, who would want that, who would want just to have your whole identity, your whole personality, your memory, your personal history erased. But that's not what Paul is saying. What Paul is saying is, hey, you know what? All the stuff that I thought was me, and in Galatians, he talks about this. All the stuff that I thought was me, Paul was this, this really you know, zealous guy for the faith and, and he was a, a legalist and he tried to keep all of the laws and he thought that would endear him to God and he was kind of a jerk to everyone around him who fell short of standards. And Paul was like, you know, this is what I built my identity on. So everything, what he's saying is everything that I thought was me has now been crucified. And that guy who made his identity over all the wrong stuff, that guy no longer lives. Now, now, now Christ lives in me. And so now the life that I live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God. In other words, Paul's saying, and when this happened, I actually came alive. When I let Jesus crucify things in me that aren't really me, I came alive. I, I found a new way of living. I came alive to the gospel. I came alive to discover who God has always made me to be. Hear me on this one more time. God does not want to make you less of you. The hard reset he wants to do in you is he wants to crucify all the things that are not you, the things that you think are you, but the things that are getting in the way of your life and peace. Those are the things that he wants to do away with. That's what it means to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And so as we close today, I want you to think about something that you are holding on to because you think it's you. But you also know that that thing, whatever that thing is that you're holding on to is, is causing you pain. It's maybe causing pain to other people. It's causing other people to suffer. Some of you wishes you could get rid of that thing, but you don't know how to let it go because it seems so core to who you are. You don't know who you'd be without it. I want you to think about that thing that's getting in the way of life and peace. Now, as I think about things in my life, I've, I've got a lot. Um, a relatively benign G-rated one that I'll share with you um, is, is uh, as I alluded to earlier, I have a bit of an edge to my personality. And um, I've always been aware that that edge could sometimes be sharp and it could hurt people. And I've never felt great about that, but I've also seen over the course of my life how, how that edge to my personality has also helped me be successful. A lot of leaders have an edge. 
That's how they just keep moving forward and getting things done and don't let resistance get in their way. And, and so I was aware that while this thing, this edge, it, it sort of caused problems for me. It caused problems for people in my life. Um, but I also knew that it's part of what made me successful. And, and so I was, I, was, I was afraid that, you know, if I ever let that go, and as I grew more and more, like, not okay with being someone who had an edge and, and caused injury to people, I also didn't know what to do with that because I'm like, well, what will happen if I, if I let go of that? Will I become less me? If, if I let Jesus crucify this part of me, will I be a less effective leader? You know, will, will this community be like, hey, you lost your mojo, Dion. You don't have what it takes anymore. Would people still respect me? Would I still respect myself? Would I be less me if I let that thing go? And uh, over time, I, I, I just kept getting more and more uncomfortable with it and just saying, you know, I don't want to be the guy. I don't want to be the guy who's sharp. I don't want to be the guy who, after time with other people, they walk away you know, bleeding. That's, that's not the kind of person I want to be. And, and here's what I came to realize. That intensity, intensity is probably a part of my created being. That's probably a part of who I am. That's probably a part of who God means for me to be. I think I'll always be intense and I think that's okay. But sharpness, that edge, that sharp edge, that's something I need to be able to hand over to Jesus to ask him to crucify. And here's what I'm beginning to discover and my, my entire healing journey has been essential for this because we all know the sharp, sharpness, that sharp edge, it's partially a defense mechanism. And so this, this has been years in the work and it's still in the work. But, but as I've started to do this, as I've started to hand over that sharpness and not be afraid of what it means for me, I still feel like me. Because I've got an intensity, a passion, but I feel like a better version of me started to look a little bit more like Jesus. Jesus, who at times was intense, but never sharp. See, maybe for you, you also have a personality trait that you have over-identified with, kind of like I just shared, and it's not actually you. You misunderstand it. Maybe that's something that you need to hand over, or maybe it's your profession, or maybe it's some other kind of uh, so-called identity marker. Maybe it's your your, uh, your gender or your race or your socioeconomic status or even your sexuality. I don't know what it is for you. But I think you have a sense of that thing. And maybe there's a lot of things, but, but what's that one thing today that you think of it as you, but deep down you know, you know it's getting in the way of your life and peace. And here's what I'm telling you, that if you're willing to offer that to Jesus, if you say, Jesus, take this and crucify this, you will not cease to be you. In fact, you'll find a way to become you, but also to become you with greater life and peace. And so right now, as we close, let's, let's do that. Let's, let's pray and ask God to help us crucify those parts of ourselves. Father in heaven, thank you for our uniqueness, our unique stories, our personality traits, our temperaments, our memories, our history. God, thanks for all the stuff that makes us us. And yet, Lord, we acknowledge that there's some stuff that we've held on to that we believe makes us us. And it's getting in the way. So, Lord, by your spirit right now, bring to mind 
whatever it is in us that is getting in the way of our life in peace. It's getting in the way of us resembling Jesus more and more. And Lord, we pray that you would take that thing, even though we're still probably pretty attached to it, and you would begin to crucify it. That you'd put to death everything that's actually getting in the way of us being the people you've created us to be. And Lord, I pray that you would make us all alive to the image that you have for each of us, unique individuals, yes. But unique individuals who look increasingly more and more every day like Jesus. Lord, I I pray you'd help us not be afraid of letting these things go, of surrendering these things, trusting that you are the God who made us. You have no desire to erase us. You do have a desire to heal us and to grow us. So Lord, when we're fearful, when we're holding on to things that are not really us, remind us of your loving character so that we might relinquish those things that are not really us, that they might be put to death and we might become more alive to you and to all that you have in mind for us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Pathfinder Church Message Podcast. If you would like to hear more messages like this, hit the subscribe button. You can also find more resources at our website, pathfinderstl.org.